trust the Lord will provide others. Well, let's turn in our Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. We are presently um, doing a series here at church called A Heart for Here. And our hope in this series is that we would together catch a fresh glimpse of the beauty of God's plan for the local church. That we would be refreshed and re-envisioned by all the Lord has called the local church to be and all he has made it as biblically defined. We want to give a heavenly view of the local church. And so Andrew started the series last week with a message called Sovereign Grace, where it all begins. I had the privilege of listening to that online and was just deeply affected, just reminded that the local church, the gathered church, it doesn't start with us. It starts with God before there was even time calling our name. And by his grace, he doesn't just call us out. He calls us, he calls us in to a gathered people, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church gathering together. And today we're going to look at that. I've called this message, The Glories of Here. The Glories of the Local Church. As we're going to read together, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And why don't we stand together as we read the word of the Lord, just as a reminder that God is addressing us here. And this is what God wants to say. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we do, as a congregation in this moment, ask for your help. Lord, we want to be addressed by you. Lord, help us not to be distracted. Help us to not have our minds filled with all the hundreds of things we've got to get done as the months go on. Help us just to fix our eyes on your face and your words. Would you speak to us by your grace? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your seats. Some years ago now, I heard of an article in Sports Illustrated magazine by Steve Russian. It was an article that he wrote during the President Clinton administration. And he says as follows. When President Clinton professed, quote, profound regret... Last Friday, over last year's accident, in which 20 people died when a U.S. military plane severed the cable of an Italian ski lift, he echoed another recent pronouncement in February when he said he was, quote, profoundly saddened by a People magazine puff piece on his daughter. But if two events, one tragic and one trivial, invoke the same rhetoric of grief, is either statement really meaningful? For we live, he writes, in an age of profound baloney. Certain words have been turned upside down and had all their meaning shaken from their pockets. In sports, there have been enough historic moments, enough epic games, enough greatest players of all time to render those phrases empty. Superlatives, he writes, even when appropriate, are bees that sting once and then die. 
you know, please don't under, misunderstand. Mr. Russian is not seeking to critique President Clinton in that minute. He's not talking about his presidency. He's seeking to draw attention to and critique the use of words. How we can often overuse words, and when we overuse words, we trivialize them. They are bees that sting once and then, in effect, die. And yet what I want you to understand this morning is that when it comes to the beauty of the local church, when it comes to the beauty of God's plan for the church in each and every believer's life and in the world, the word profound in its purest form is the only word that actually fits. When you stop and look at heaven's perspective on the church, it is profound. See, Mr. Spurgeon, the wonderful Baptist preacher, once said that the church was the dearest place on earth. This is what he says. He says, if I, have, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. He's honest. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to me. See, he knew what the Bible says about the church. And so his divine perspective, as he looks at God's view of the church, is, you know what, imperfect though it is, it is the dearest place on earth to me. Because he knows the local church is profound from a biblical perspective. And so here's the question I want us to examine today from God's word. The question is, and so what is it about the local church that makes it so profound? What is it about the church that causes one preacher to call it the dearest place on earth? What is it about the local church from heaven's perspective that actually makes it so wonderfully profound? And as we examine this today, I trust you are refreshed. I trust you are re-envisioned and you catch a fresh glimpse of the beauty of God's plan for the church because it is profound. So what is it that makes it so profound? Well, four things, four points this morning. Here's the first. It's the reality that together we're a temple. Look again at the text in Ephesians 2. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that is an amazing statement and a profound statement to make. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer alienated from God, a stranger to God. You're no longer a stranger and alienated from one another. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. And here's what he's doing with you. He's building you together into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A temple. Paul then repeats this reality in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are the temple. 
You know, that statement, without any shadow of a doubt, is truly profound in its purest form. And the early Christians that would have gathered around that text, this would have been an absolute head stretcher for them. This would have been a staggering moment. You're calling us? Us? The temple? See, all the way through the Old Testament, God's manifest presence in the world was seen first in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple then for centuries was with the place where the people of God would go to meet and encounter God. They would seek to encounter him. They would pray to him. They would worship him. They would make sacrifices to him. They would all gather in and around the temple. And then once a year, the great high priest would actually go into the very manifest presence of God. He would walk right into the Holy of Holies. He would go through the curtain and walk right in once a year on the Day of Atonement on behalf of the entire people of God. That man would go in and encounter God. It says that they used to put bells on his legs so they could, and they asked him to keep walking around so that if the bells stopped, they realized he had died and God had struck him down and they'd pull him out by rope because no one's going in after him. Once a year, this great high priest would go in. And that's what happened for centuries, year after year after year. People of God coming to the temple to encounter God and worship him and make sacrifices to him. But when Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished, everything in that moment changed. Because as he cried out, it is finished, that temple curtain that kept the very manifest presence of God away from the people, it says the temple curtain tore in two. That's a staggering reality. That temple curtain was 18 meters high, 6 meters wide, and 10 centimeters thick. It's not like your average curtain around your house. This thing was incredibly thick, and it had golden clasps that kept it. It was two massive sheets, and it had golden clasps that kept it all together. And it says that as Jesus said, it is finished. It tore in two, but not from bottom to top. Man would do that. It tore in two from top to bottom, God creating that. And these two huge pieces of curtain were then flapping in the wind, showing and it was revealing that we now have access to God. We can now approach God through the death of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. We can come into the very presence of God. This was a mind-blowing reality. Ben started the service with it today. And we can hear it. And it's not like we're sitting there going, wow. But they would have been. The fact that you can go into the presence of God is a staggering reality. James tells us that we can draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To the early Christians, this was incredible. This was staggering. This was profound. I can now walk into the very presence of God. That's amazing. And then Paul tells us, so it's not just that. Yes, you can go into the very presence of God. Yes, you can approach God. But now this temple, this structure that we've looked to for decades and centuries to go to, to encounter God, it's, it's no longer about bricks. It's about people. It's about people. And I'm going to build a temple from different people, from different tribes and languages and nations, and I'm going to put them together one brick at a time into small local church communities, and there I will dwell with them. It's amazing. It's a temple not made up of bricks and mortar anymore. We don't go to church. We are the church. As he builds us one stone at a time, living stones into a dwelling place for him. Now, Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And for so long in my life, when I heard that, it didn't really make sense to me because you're like, well, are you with me when I'm by myself as well? 
Aren't you present everywhere all the time? So you're always with me. And that's true. But what he's trying to help us see is that although that is the case, that I do gather with you when you're by yourself, I gather with you in a very different way when you are with other Christians. When you're with the temple, being built together by me, one brick at a time, living stones into a temple in which I will dwell with you. Donald Whitney picks up on this in his book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. He says, God will manifest his presence to you in congregational worship in ways you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you're not only a temple of God as an individual, but the Bible says, and far more often, that Christians collectively are God's temple. For God manifests his presence in different ways to the living stones of his temple when they are gathered than he does to them when they are apart. It's so true, isn't it? We can have time with the Lord by ourselves, and we should, but he just does something different when we gather than he does when we were by ourselves. I experienced it in worship this morning. I stopped in worship at one point. I stopped singing, and I was just listening to you, declaring the glories of the Lord, and it did my soul good. I encountered God in a different way than I do if I'm just sitting by myself. Why? Well, because together we're a temple. God has taken us one stone at a time and building us together into a place where he himself will dwell, telling us where two or more are gathered together in my name, I will be with you. I'll be with you in a different way. I will encounter you. That is a profound reality. But that's not all that makes the church so profound. Because number two, it's the reality that together we're a family. We're a family. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that we are called out by God. And we are. We're chosen before the foundation of the earth, as Andrew preached on so well last week. Called out before the foundation of the earth. And then when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Jesus Christ died in our place on the cross. And when we put our faith in him, he made it clear you can be forgiven of your sin and adopted into the family of God. You can be reconciled to him. You can know for sure that heaven is your home. We were chosen before the foundation of the earth to find salvation in Christ. And yet when we get to Ephesians 2, what we discover is we're not just called out by God to be lone rangers for Jesus. No, we're called out by God to be called in to a community to a place where we are no longer strangers and aliens, but members of the household of God, literally sons and daughters of God, literally brothers and sisters in Christ, namely family. Church isn't service. Church is family. It's a community called out by God to gather together and do life together. Reuben Walsh says it this way, He says, of course we believe in the total adequacy of Jesus Christ to meet the total need of the total person. But we must remember this also. He saves into the context of the community of faith. So it isn't Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. And so it is. We live in such an individualistic society. So we think Jesus and me. Even when we read the Lord is my shepherd, we just think it's it's just me. It's just me and him. But actually, when we read our Bibles, you realize he saves us and then brings us immediately into the context of faith. It isn't Jesus and me. It's Jesus and we. One author says this about the reality of the church being family. He says, the church family is where we learn to love God and others. 
where we are strengthened and transformed by the truth of the word, where we're taught to pray, to worship and to serve, where we can be most certain that we're investing our time and abilities for eternity, where we can grow in our roles as friends, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. For the church is Earth's single best place, God's specifically designed place, to start over, to grow, and to change for the glory of God. And so it is. The church is a family. You know, growing up in my life in the UK, and really throughout my life, I've had the privilege, biologically speaking, of being in a wonderful, strong Christian family. That's what I grew up in. I remember then when I was a kid and my grandma would take me out at different times and invest in me. And she's now gone to be with the Lord. But she comes from a long line of people who love Jesus. And actually, it starts with my great-grandma. My great-grandma actually reads, if you, we've still got her Bible, and she actually says that if God can save me, he can save anybody. That's because she had an affair and got pregnant outside of marriage. And God used that to bring her to Christ and turn my grandma and turn my mom and turn me. But whenever I was with my grandma, um, it was just like being with Jesus from what I could see. She used to talk to me about Jesus all the time. She talked to me about her love for the Lord, how she wanted me to love the Lord. And she modeled it. She was, she was actually the most generous person I ever met. And that was a big deal because she was in housing association. I never knew my grandma when she wasn't in council housing and housing association houses when I was born. I was born into a housing association estate. Um, my grandma just loved Jesus. I wanted to give her all for Jesus and wanted to do the same. I remember when growing up with my mum and dad, you'd get a bit older and you'd say, Mum and dad, what do you want to do? What should I do in my life? What do you want me to be? And every time the answer would be the same. It'd be like, oh, son, we don't really mind what you do for a living. We just want you to love Jesus with all your heart and serve him all your days. That was the mantra all the time. And they just drilled into us as kids that the church really is the dearest place on earth. Our lives were built around the local church. We only missed church if we were away or dying. The rest of the time, we were there. And it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a bad thing. My parents were like, isn't it exciting? We get to go, we get to be with God's people because they're family. This is where we belong. And so my mom and dad used to talk to me about the Lord all the time. My aunties and uncles would do the same. <laughs> they would be encouraging me in my faith and wanting to pray for me. And my brothers and sisters in time, they did exactly the same too. Spur me on to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I had the privilege, biologically speaking, of growing up in a strong Christian family. And I still get to experience in that, albeit that they're now overseas. And yet I'm aware for many of you in this room, you don't relate to what I've just said. That's not your story. You don't experience that in terms of a family, biologically speaking. Well, God knows that too. And so guess what he does? He saves you by his grace. And then he walks you through those doors and he says, hey, listen up. This is your family now. These are your mums and your dads. These are your aunties and uncles. These are your cousins. These are your brothers and sisters. And then we're called by God to do all the one another's of Scripture, to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to, to weep with one another, rejoice. Why? Because we're family. That's what families do. And you exhort one another all the time to live for Christ. I experienced that biologically, but we have a blood running through our veins, the blood of Jesus Christ, which makes us related. And that's what the church is all about. It's not a service. It's family. And I thank God as one of your pastoral team for the way you do family together. 
we have the privilege as a pastoral team of watching you and hearing stories of you. And I get to see it with my own eyes. And you do family oh so well. The way you love for one another, the way you weep with one another, the way you care for one another. It's not uncommon at the end of our services to see little pockets of people praying together, bothered about one another, seeking to encourage one another. That's family life. You do so well in carrying one another's burdens and building one another up and spurring one another on. That's really what our gospel communities in big part are all about, aren't they? Spurring one another on. We all get distracted at different times, do we not? Well, I do. So if you don't, but I do. <laughs> we all get distracted. Things come up at different times. We need brothers and sisters around us saying, come on, let's keep going. Can lift up your eyes. Let's not get distracted. Yeah, I know that hurt. It was painful. I wish it had never happened. But let's go because we haven't got long left. Jesus is coming back soon. Let's keep living for him. Let's keep serving him. You do this so well as a congregation. And likewise, you, by the grace of God, carry one another's burdens. You offer hospitality to one another. You care for one another. You serve one another. You know, it's not unusual for us to have babies in this church and the the roster comes out for eight months of meals and you're like, I don't know what they're going to eat for eight months. This is staggering. But the way you care for one another and bother one another, things happen, people move. For a long time, we used to have like church boxes passing from house to house as people were moving all the time in Sydney. People are bothered about one another. When stuff goes on, people are there. People are calling. I was speaking to somebody just this week that I met with two or three people just this week to encourage them and to help them and serve them. All that happens behind the scenes, but it's family life. And you do it so well. You know, the most important thing about understanding the church's family is understanding that each and every part of the church has a part to play. Maybe you're somebody that thinks, you know, I don't think I need to go to gospel community. I already have a few friends. I'll be fine. Wrong question. Yes, you need them. But more importantly, they need you. They need you to be a mom or a dad or an auntie or an uncle or a brother and sister. And if you're not there, they don't experience that. It's family. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody needs to be involved. The church is a profound place. It's a temple. It's a family. That's not all. Number three, it's the reality that together we're a body. And we're not just any body, we're actually, as biblically defined, the body of Christ. In Ephesians 1 verses 22 to 23, we read about what the Father has done for the Son. And this is what we read. It said, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is a staggering reality. He is saying up close and personal that as a local church, you are a living, breathing representation of Jesus on the earth. That's staggering. The church is so close to God, so central to his work in the world that he calls us the body of Christ. There's no doubt then that we are brothers and sisters, that we are related in Christ, but we are way more than that. And as we express our union with Christ and through worship and service and loving relationships with one another, we become the living, breathing, physical manifestation of Jesus in the world. Wow. 
Where is Jesus in the world today? How can Jesus be seen in the world today? Let us see him right here. Let us see him right here through brothers and sisters giving their lives and their gifts and building relationships together, linking arm in arm so that they can be a visible, tangible, real world expression of the body of Christ. That's amazing. We get to be the hands and feet together of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, you realize we all have a part to play. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, we read to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Are you aware of that? Everybody in the room has a gift. Everybody in the room has a part to play. Everybody, by the grace of God, has been gifted by God with something so that as they use those gifts, guess what? The church can be built. That's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about how when we get connected and get committed, the church builds itself up in love. Why and how? Well, as each person uses their gifts and the church starts to build itself up in love. And then we read in John 13 that it's as we do that, that we're actually then positioned to play our great mission in the world to which we've been called. I mean, all of us know that we've been called to make disciples of all nations, don't we? But so often, tragically, Often through bad missiology, actually, people go off by themselves as lone rangers and think, well, this is what evangelism is. No, it's not. Missiology and ecclesiology, i.e. the church, are wonderfully and intrinsically linked all the time, all the way through Scripture. And here's how it works. In John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is what he says. He says, a new commandment I now give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's how it works. As we give ourselves to one another in relationships, as we give ourselves in love for one another, as we use our gifts to serve one another, the world looking on will see there's something different about you. There's something real different about you as a group of people. What are they seeing? They're seeing Christ. They're seeing the body of Christ working. The very thing, the very vehicle, the conduit through which the gospel is to go to all the world as we be his body, his hands and feet here on earth. Isn't that amazing? You and I have the privilege as we join together of representing Christ. What could be a greater treasure than that? than representing Jesus as we stand together for his glory. It says in the book of Ephesians that as Christians do that, the angels in the heavenly realm see the manifold wisdom of God and return to him all the time praising his name. It's amazing. It's like an out-of-this-world picture of how the local church works. As they see Christians working through issues, standing side by side in the gospel, they return to him and be like, I can't believe that's working. I can't believe you've got those people who are so different that were enemies of you and didn't even like any other. I can't believe that you've got them getting on and they now love one another and worship you. It causes them to worship all the more. The angels get to see and look on at Sovereign Grace Church Sydney and return to the Lord with fresh appreciation because they see the gospel at work. And the world also gets to see something. The body of Jesus. We're not just a service. We're a temple. We're family. We're the very body of Christ. And then finally, the fourth thing that makes it so profound 
It's the reality that together we're a bride. You know, I will talk more about this next week in the final message of this short series. But I do just want to touch on it here. It comes in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25. It's a section of scripture where Paul is addressing wives and husbands, but he talks, if you pay attention, he talks about how Christ feels about his bride. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Listen. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're that bride. We're that temple. We're that body. We together collectively are the bride of Christ. It's not like we can just go off as individuals with a wedding dress on and say, oh, what are you doing? It's like, I'm the bride of Christ. That's really weird. No, it's as we gather together that he looks on us as the church and says, you're my bride. And he laid his life down for the bride. He laid his life down for us. John Stott says it this way in his commentary. He says, what stands out in Paul's development of his theme of the bride is the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for her. He chose her from eternity past. He set his affections upon her. And then buying her back from sin, he gently sanctifies and cleanses her, preparing her for himself. His love for his bride is not flighty. It's not given to whim. For it is zealous. And it is unchanging. My friends, how does the Savior feel about the church, his bride? He passionately loves her. 2,000 years ago, he laid his life down for her. He's talking about this, the church. He laid his life down for his bride. And how does he feel about her now? Well, his love is unchanging. His love isn't on a whim. He still passionately loves his bride today. You know, just this week, I heard from another pastor in the States, actually, about an older man had just started attending his church um, and his wife wasn't able to be with him that morning because she was sick. But he started to come along and the pastor went and introduced himself. And, ah, oh, you know, what's your name? And he told him his name. And he said, oh, are you married? And he's like, yeah, I'm married, but my wife's sick. But I am married to the best lady in the world. We've been married 50 years. And he starts talking about his wife. his effect, And he's like, can I show you a picture of her? So he gets out his wallet and, and he's thinking that he's going to see some 50-year-old picture, you know, from years or went their, their wedding day. And it was a picture from just a few weeks before. And he said, isn't she beautiful? You know, I hope for us men that have been married a long time and will start to be married a long time, that we'll feel about our wives after we've been married 50 years like that man talked about his wife. That she, outside of Christ, is the apple of my eye. Listen, men... Your wife, outside of Christ, is the greatest gift that God has ever given you. She should be treasured and loved and cared for. But here's the thing. What we need to realize is if Christ himself was to get a picture out of his bride and talk about her so wonderfully, he would be showing pictures of you, of us. Isn't she lovely? She's the one I gave my life away for. She's the one I'm getting ready. 
She's the one I'm preparing because one day soon there's going to be a wedding day and I'm coming back for her. John Stock continues this way. He says, on earth, she, meaning the church, is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles and any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It is the bridegroom who labors to beautify her in order to present her to himself. How does Christ feel about the church? He loves her with all his heart. And he is committed to her. And his love is zealous and unchanging. And so what is it about the church that makes it so profound? Well, it's the reality that together we're a temple. He's building us together one brick at a time into a dwelling place for him. It's the reality that together we're a family. We don't just go to church. We are the church. We're brothers and sisters and moms and dads and aunties and uncles. Everybody has a part to play and we need one another. With all the aspects of church life and all the one another's, we actually need one another. We can't function properly for the glory of God. He's given us himself and he's given us one another. And together we're a body. A body where we all have different gifts and different abilities, but we all have parts to play so that we can represent Christ here in this earth. And together we're a bride. A bride that he laid his life down for. If ever you want to see how passionate Jesus is about the church, then examine the cross. That's how much he loves the local church. And so to each and every one of us then, here's my prayer for us as we move forward into 23. It's my prayer for us that we would start to say, imperfect though it is, this church is the dearest place on earth to me. I love it. It's my home. My friends, the church isn't just some man-made institution or program. It's not just something that somebody thought, you know what, it might be nice to kind of meet together. I mean, soccer clubs meet together and netball clubs meet together. Why don't we meet together? It'd be nice. It's not some institutional man-made program. It has been devised by God himself and planned before the foundation of the earth and we are now walking in it. So may it always be profound in our eyes and may it always be glorious to us, the dearest place on earth. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for addressing us this morning with such fatherly tender care. Lord, I thank you for re-envisioning us and giving us fresh affections for your divine plan. And Lord, I thank you for the plan. We are the glad recipients of your plan. In your mercy and your grace, you didn't just save us to yourself and then say, okay, it's me and you now, kid. You saved us to Jesus and we. You built us into temples, into bodies, into families so that we may play our part and when we receive the parts of others. Lord, may Sovereign Grace Church be the dearest place on earth to us. Imperfect though it is, may it always be profound in our eyes because you are building us together, living stones as your temple. In Jesus' name.